And today I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of Acts chapter 9. And I think I have 19b listed there, but I'm actually going to read all of 19. Um, it goes into the passages from a couple weeks ago into verse 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. In taking food, he was strengthened. From some day, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who, who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? to bring them bound before the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of the beginning of the ministry, which is a continuance of the ministry of Jesus Christ, but the beginning of the ministry of Saul, of Paul, a furthering and an establishment of the church, and a proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. Help us this day to see it as you have written it and as you have proclaimed it. May it be that we would believe and have our faith rooted that Jesus is the Son of God, that we would be strengthened by this word, that we would anticipate humbly that there will be opposition to this proclamation, but may it be that we would not only hope but expect that a miracle would happen, that you would rescue your people, that you will further your people, even when the odds seem to be against it, that your name will be proclaimed and your kingdom will come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is part two of what I'm anticipating to be a three-part sermon on this passage And this passage, just from its general observation, may seem fairly basic and and pretty straightforward. And in a way, it very much is. We have had the more miraculous and the more astounding part of the conversion of Saul. And now we're seeing the ministry of Saul and how his first encounter with the Jews and the Pharisees happened after he started proclaiming Jesus Christ. But... It is important, as we have in many other areas of the Acts study so far, to see the parallels of what Luke is actually wanting us to understand about the astounding nature of the church. What is going on here is not just a happenstance record of what Paul focused on or what he did in the synagogues and then the conflict that he had. There is a particular structure here that is a parallel to how God has been operating throughout all of the scriptures, but particularly things that are going on in Christ. 
And so this is a foundational pad, again, which all of Acts is, which is both showing us things that Jesus is going to fulfill through his church, but it's also things for us to understand how our nature toward our calling is in the church. It's always those particular things, and it's masterfully done in such a way. We are not participating in the apostolic age, but we're standing upon the apostolic work that has occurred here in Acts. And so as I stopped and took, you know, it's one reason why I stopped to focus on this was because of the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. And I thought, well, it works out pretty well with our Advent pace going into the Christmas season. But as I studied it, I kept seeing more and more of how the pattern of Paul's ministry is basically a reflection or a continuance reflection of the ministry of how God is always furthering his kingdom. Last week, I focused on the proclamation of the angel to Mary about the Son of God, that what was occurring here was both that conceived in her womb is the very Son of God, but also to be the son of Joseph. And that combination is an an astounding combination, something that's never happened before and never will happen again, that one person is both God and man. In one phrase proclaimed by the angel Gabriel to Mary that this one, this child, this son is both son of God, son of the mighty one, but also the one who would inherit the kingdom of his father David, which is through his father, his adopted father, Joseph. And so as we think about what these words are being said by Paul, we, it's important, important for us to, to settle in on this because in this particular proclamation that Christ is the Son of God, the whole church is built upon that proclamation. It is not just a thing that Paul decided to pick from to preach on, that those simple words that he is the Son of God is the very cornerstone of the church. And I want to go through exactly what happens here. And I want to go back, starting with where the Son was proclaimed with Jesus himself, where he first would have had those words put above his head, in a sense, through the proclamation of his very own father. But first of all, look at what's going on here. So Paul, he was converted. I'm going to go back and forth with Paul and Saul. I know it's a mistake that I'll make, but it's, I know it's Saul in this particular chapter, but it is actually Paul, same, same person. But he was, he was first baptized after he converted and, and saw the Lord, and then the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he was strengthened by taking food. Again, Luke is not just throwing these things in here as just little things to to fill in the gaps of a a particular narrative. This is a parallel of something that we'll see here in a few moments. So after receiving the Holy Spirit, I mean, after being baptized and then receiving the Holy Spirit, he begins to preach. And then there's a reaction. We see that the reaction is, is that they question who he is. They're looking at his person, his origin, and he's all, they're also questioning his motives. And so that is also, again, a theme that we'll see later on or going back and seeing that has occurred before. And then, 
as Paul is proclaiming and proving that Jesus is the Christ, the reaction is people want to kill him. Again, a parallel of things that we will see going back and looking at not just things that happen in the gospel, but things that have happened throughout the history of mankind. We're not going to get into all of those things today, but we are going to go back and by looking at the meaning of the Son of God, we're going to see how that was proclaimed by the Father at the baptism of Jesus. First of all, the Son of God has a lot of different meanings throughout the Scripture. In, in some respects, sometimes the Son of God is, is given to angels or given to people just of God or people who came from God. It's more of a generic terminology. But we know that when this is being preached, this is not just somebody created by God or someone who is in the representation of God. In this particular case, it is going along with how the Old Testament, as the Messiah was being explained through the Old Testament, as God's people were beginning to understand the whole idea of that there would be a Messiah, they would, it would also be parallel that the Messiah would be the Son of God. And so when Paul is saying that Jesus is the Son of God, it brings in with that a fulfillment of all the things that were proclaimed about who the Messiah would be. We also just to stop a moment and think about the fact that it's the Son. The Sonship of the Son of God is a very important thing to understand. And I would say in this day and age, as we are dealing with all kinds of identity issues, this is one of the things I think Satan is going against for one of these reasons, because Jesus himself is the Son of God. Now, with the Son, you have two different types of roles that a Son will have. A Son will first have a place of submission and obedience. Knox is my Son. He is in a role where he is in my care. He's turned 18, and we're in this kind of awkward stage in our life right now where he's still under my care, but he's going into his own manhood. And, and there's some healthy pushback back and forth in our relationship. It's a very helpful thing for us to, to have that. He's been completely under my authority throughout his whole life. And as he's gotten older, that's, I'm starting to pull back. He may not always feel that way. Um, sometimes he makes me nervous, you know, especially when he's driving. You know, you can kind of see that when you start letting them get the steering wheel. And you're like, okay, turn, go left, go right. And then as he was getting closer to having his license, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to be here to tell him, stop. <laughs> Pull it back in. You're across the line. That I had to have to stop being so edgy. I'm going to have to just trust that he's going to be able to do that. So you see a transition that he is once in a place where he has to obey, a place where he is in full submission, but he is becoming his own man. He is actually, since he is my firstborn son, he is the one that I've appointed to inherit my house. Um, because with that inheritance, he will also have to be available to help any of his sisters, if they would find themselves in particular need, or if there's a particular need for that property for the sake of the family, he has that care that he would need to provide. Now, hopefully I will live a long time and he won't ever have to, to worry about that anytime soon. But he will have a place of inherited authority as he transitioned into this place. So when we think about sons and sonship, 
it is purposeful for us to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that idea of him being in a place of obedience and submission is an amazing thing to consider. That God, the creator of all things, in his particular person role as the Son of God, is in a place of submission and obedience to his Father. Now this has been something that has been debated and still debated even into this day, but that is, from what I can see in the scriptures and what is orthodox in belief, is what the whole point of the sonship of Jesus Christ, that he is in submission to the Father. He is in obedience to the Father. But his identification of being the Son of God means that he is obeying the Father, that he is doing that role faithfully. Even Jesus, when he is talking to the Pharisees, there is this conflict because he's explaining that his disciples will obey the word of God, which in a sense he's saying that the sons of God, the disciples of God, are going to reflect the very commands of what God has given. But then he turns to the Pharisees and he says to them, your father is the devil. Because you do not obey. Because they were saying, well, Abraham is our father. They were pointing back to them being Jews. They were pointing back to their circumcision. But he was pointing to their actions and ultimately pointing to their heart that how they were thinking and how they were living was as if they were the sons of the devil himself. So when Jesus is called the son of God, it's a representation that he is perfectly the Son of God. He is the one who is completely obedient to the Father and completely reflective of what the Father has commanded. Then lastly, he is the only begotten Son. Again, this is not something that's an easy thing for anyone to preach, that the one who has always existed is also the one who was begotten. But he was made flesh, and he is the only begotten son. The Father had given Jesus as the only begotten son, that he is incarnate. He is the begotten one of God. He completes this bridge between man and God. Now, for some people, I think I've preached in Christmas's past about the word homoousius. Does anybody know what the word homoousius is? I've preached about it probably a couple of Sundays in the past, but does anybody know what the word homoousius is? It's kind of a fun thing because in Christmas I'll go around and I'll say ho, 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 homoousius sometimes to some of the people that I know, that, you know maybe people who are studying theology. But Jonathan, would you take a crack at it? Do you know what homoousius is? Oh, what type of slime? No. <laughs> Maybe phonetically you would think that. Any other ideas? Well, it, homo means same, and usius is substance. It was a debate that goes all the way back to the Council of Nicaea, which is, we did the Nicaean Creed today, and in that, one of the things that was focused on was this essence of Jesus being the begotten Son of God that he was both son and same substance with the father. He is in a role of sonship, but also he is in a place of being the fullness of God. 
These are not things that our minds can perfectly comprehend, but the word that they debated, the idea that they debated, was homoousius. How can God be co-substance with the Father and co-eternal? But by how the proclamation of the word is proclaimed, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the only begotten Son. So whenever it is proclaimed by Paul or Peter or anyone concerning Christ's position, that when it says that he is the Son of God, it is a proclamation that he is one in submission to the Father, but he is also one who is the same in substance, the same in power and in glory with the Father. He is God himself. He is God. And these are fighting words for all of us. Now we may say, no, I believe that. But that is a conflict in this world, in this particular age, that we are always going to have inside of our heart because we are ultimately being faced with the fact that the one who is now our brother, who is Jesus, the one who is in the flesh, who was incarnate and born of the Virgin Mary, is also God. Jesus came to take over his people. There was severance between mankind and God. But now the one who has come, God and man, is bringing together his people. And we still, in our sin, are fighting that. We're still wanting to fight the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And those who may not even have what we have, but they have no belief and no faith, they're definitely going to fight against this proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is why we have here that the Pharisees, that the scribes and the high priests, when they hear Paul proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, they... They're astounded. They're astounded that he is saying the exact same things that Jesus said, the exact same things that Peter and the other disciples were saying, and this one who was now used to be on their side is now proclaiming this thing that they cannot stand to hear, and they finally decide, you know what, we're just going to have to kill Paul. Well, let's go back, and today I want to go back and and look at when Jesus was baptized to see how this parallel is to highlight for us the importance of the proclamation of the Son of God. First, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3. It's the very, well, the last paragraph of chapter 3 in verse 13. And this is the baptism of Jesus. Now remember, again, that what we have here with Paul, and, I, and I'm trying to make a case here. Very little commentaries are making this structure, so I'm feeling a little bit on the edge, but I'm pretty confident in this parallel, what is going on with Jesus is being now repeated in the life of Paul, which is a, really a repetition of, of all of our calling and ministry. You have Saul was baptized. Then you have the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. And then Saul, he had food and was nourished. And we're going to see a contrast with Jesus concerning food. And then after that, there is the proclamation of the deity and the calling of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. 
So in Matthew chapter 3, and you also have the pushback, I forgot to mention that, you also have the pushback of those who do not believe when that is proclaimed. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is his, ultimately, this is his anointing. Even though we have through his conception and birth that he is born, that he is incarnate, he is now the king has come, and people are reacting properly to that. This is the official transition from Jesus being really a child and then a young man going into his ministry calling, taking now the reins of his particular calling by being anointed in baptism and by the Holy Spirit. He has now been truly marked as the one who is going to be the baptized and be the one who is the one anointed by the Holy Spirit to be the Messiah. Now, The big contrast that we'll have here, that both in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 1, the Spirit will lead Jesus into the wilderness, where he will fast for 40 days and be tempted by Satan. The, the, one of the major differences that we should very much obviously see when Saul is preaching that Jesus is the Son of God is that we know that Saul is not the Son of God. He is not the Savior and the Messiah. He is going to be proclaiming Jesus, but Jesus, as he is going and he establishing the very foundation of the church, He is the Son of God, and so what he's going to do here, the Spirit will lead him into the wilderness to ultimately win his people. It is the bridge of connecting both the Old Covenant within the New Covenant by going back and doing what Israel could not do in the wilderness. They could not remain faithful when they were in the wilderness. Jesus will go and he will fast for 40 days and he will face Satan face to face. And here we see in this particular account that this is how he defeats Jesus. But notice what Satan comes at Jesus with. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 4 in Matthew. And it's interesting, in Luke it's almost the exact same placement in the in the gospel. I don't know if they just how they wrote out the chapters and the verses if they were thinking about that, but if you go to Luke chapter 4, it starts with verse 1 in the same way of Jesus being led into the wilderness. Different words, same account though. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, "If you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, again, this particular chronological event 
happens consistently in other places, even though it may be laid out a little differently. Jesus' ministry begins with his baptism, with the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and God the Father himself proclaiming for all witnesses to hear and assuring even Jesus himself, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then as Jesus goes into the wilderness... The tempter, which is the devil, comes to Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God, do this thing. We don't know a lot about Satan and his origins in a direct way in the scriptures. We don't know how all that went down when he fell from his placement in heaven. There's not a particular chapter and verse that perfectly lays out a, a narrative form like we have in the gospel and like we have in the epistles. We have some, some parallels. You see some things in Isaiah and Ezekiel that has very poetic language and it's interwoven with the kings of that time. But we do have a, a general picture, a pretty good picture of that there was this conflict in heaven with Satan. And we do have this understanding that he had a place of authority and that he even had authority on the earth. We're about to see this even in this narrative of the temptation. But we don't have it perfectly laid out. It's a very vague thing. So we make our conclusions about who Satan is by just the bits and pieces that God has revealed to us in his word. And one of the things that is very clear from our first introduction of Satan in Genesis is that he questions the word of God. And just like he did in Genesis, he is doing it now. As soon as Jesus is in the wilderness, he comes and questions the very word of God. And the very point that he's questioning is the sonship of Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important for us to be rooted in this proclamation. There are multiple places, especially in the New Testament, for us to be firmly rooted in understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. And you usually can tell if it's something important if that is what Satan begins to attack. Satan immediately attacks Jesus by questioning his sonship. Now, one of the things that we've come to conclude, it's not a perfectly understanding, but even good pastors like Edwards, Jonathan Edwards has come to conclude, is that Satan is full of resentment from not being the one who has the role of being able to be called the faithful son of God. He has a hunger for authority. He has a hunger for power, but he has no patience for service. In fact, it has been concluded by pastors and theologians in the past that one of the biggest things about Satan and all the angels that fell, they resented the whole idea of having to be in submission to humans, God's people. And their particular role was to serve the redeemed. They hated that. They wanted the power and the authority themselves. Well, with that in mind, as we see here, we can understand why Satan would come at Jesus and say, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the father. 
There is also debate about whether or not these particular three temptations cover all the temptations in some way of everything that we, that we could be tempted by in, in the commands of God. I, and I think there's been good arguments to indicate that. You could say, well, how is, you know, we could spend a lot of time breaking it down. But what we can see here, that the very first thing that Satan's really focused on is questioning the word of God questioning the position that Jesus has as the Son of God, and as a temptation, he is going to appeal to Jesus' appetite. Now, our appetite can be very broad in in very many things, and you can see how destructive appetite can be. It can cause us to make all kinds of bad decisions. If we begin to become accustomed to certain things and even addicted to certain things, our appetite can take over to all reasonability. We see even early on where people have given up their birthrights, where they've made decisions that they weren't clear-headed because of either being hungry or being in drunkenness because of their appetite. Here, Jesus was clearly hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days, and Satan was trying to appeal to the hunger and the appetite of Jesus to ultimately to deny his very calling as the Son of God. Satan's appetite for power and authority caused him to do something that pushed him from his position that was in a closeness with God himself. Here, the Son of God is being tempted by the same thing, the thing that Satan couldn't do, the same thing that people, the patriarchs of the Old Testament couldn't do, the same that we can't do, that we give in to our appetite and we fail the name of God. Jesus accomplished by simply pointing back to the word and promise of God that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes From the mouth of God. Jesus destroys the proclamation and the temptation and the denial of Satan by questioning whether or not he was the Son of God by pointing back to the Word of God itself. Secondly, in verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Again, if you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now Satan, he is crafty. We know that he is the most crafty of any beast in the field. And he, after Jesus points to the word of God to defeat Satan's first temptation, Satan himself will use quotes from Scripture to attempt to tempt Jesus to again to deny his sonship, his position. He is calling Jesus to assume upon God, to do the thing that Israel would do, that Israel would assume upon their position with God, but they would test God. They would assume to have God's goodness but they would oppose his will. Jesus is also being tempted in the same way, but actually appealing to the very fact that Jesus is the Son of God and saying, because you do have this position of being the Son of God, because if that's what you're saying is true, if you're saying you're the Son of God, and if you're saying that the Word of God is what sustains you, 
then you should be able to toss yourself down from this pinnacle and God will protect you. Jesus knows what his commands are. Jesus knows what his calling is. And he responds to Satan saying, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is why it is good to interpret scripture by scripture. This is why, in some respects, I'm actually going back through other passages as we preach this. One, I want to point out that this is not, the narrative of Saul is not just data for us to see, but it is a parallel of a proclamation of God's sonship in Christ that is established throughout all of Scripture. It's going back and letting Scripture show the weightiness of what's going on in the Acts passage. And what Jesus is doing, he is interpreting Scripture with Scripture. He's not saying that those things are not true about his position and place, but he's saying, but Scripture also says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Just as Israel assumed upon themselves that since they were the people of God, that they could go into a different direction from the will of God and they would be okay. How will they find this out? How, what would God do? And God says, I will bring judgment upon you. You are testing me. And over and over again, Israel would test God. Well, brothers and sisters, how often do we do that? We call ourselves Christians. We're baptized. We have the mark of the covenant upon us. We go to church. We try to do Christian-like things. But we'll take that name that is born upon us, that is granted to us by the work of Jesus Christ, and we will still live our lives testing God, going after idols, doing things according to our appetites and our own hungers, Apart from the submission calling to us and the roles called to us according to Scripture, and we'll assume everything's going to be okay. This is a common temptation for all of God's people, and it was a temptation placed before Jesus, and he said, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Jesus' sonship by definition, was that he was in obedience to the plan of God. He would carry out exactly what he was supposed to do, not to test his role, but to use his calling as a way to submit and to serve, which Satan cannot stand. That is one of the things that's inside of him, this humility he cannot grasp, he cannot Delight in, or he cannot fulfill. It says again in verse 8, it says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. In him only shall you serve. Jesus knew what was before him, but there was no shortcuts for him to take the kingdoms of the world. His sonship first required his submission. He knew that he had the inheritance of all things coming to him. 
But his sonship was required that he must obey the plan of the father, which was to go to the cross. For some reason, the economy of God's plan, he granted Satan this temporary power. But the principalities and powers of that age that are still lingering but diminishing because they are ultimately at loss now in this place of the resurrection. But for some reason, God granted the devil authority. This was not just something that he was playing around with. This was a real thing to offer Jesus that in some way, this authority that Satan had could be exchanged if Satan could just get this perfect son of God to worship him. Just as Satan hungered for authority and his appetite was for a place of authority, he hungered for glory. He hungered for worship. He wanted to put his place in front of God's place. And Jesus responded in obedience and faithfulness and in perfection, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He defeats Satan's temptations. He defeats and overcomes the things that Satan gave into. He defeats and overcomes our very own temptations. If you really take a moment and just think about it, in all of those particular areas of where we get entangled with sin, it has to do with our appetites, pleasing ourselves, over carrying on our place of covenantal calling. We are those who assume upon God. Even non-believers are in the same place. They are created in God's image, but they go on and on in their life in the goodness of the earth, and they assume in their life that all will go well. Even if they are those who are suicidal or who are in despair, they are not trusting. They have been sold out into deception to reject the very creator, the calling of worship and submission that has been given to them. It is a place of unwillingness to submit to authority. And we too, we are constantly those who are unwilling to submit to authority in microscopic ways and in major ways. We have that difficulty, and I think it gets really highlighted during Christmas. There's so many things going on in Christmas that are tantalizing to us, whether it's plans or parties or things or just wanting to have a peace of mind or wanting to have some nostalgic moment of some Christmas past. I know last year we had snow, and it was a lot of fun to get Christmas, uh, I mean, get snow on Christmas Day. Well, as soon as people started seeing the weather forecast in our family, and as soon as we woke up to 50-something degree weather later on, like, oh, we didn't get snow. (laughs) You know, it's like, well, God, he does reign the authority of all things, including the weather. And we just can't handle it because it doesn't fit our little nostalgic idea of the perfect Christmas. Now, those are fun ways to point to how we are, but we know that we are reactive in all kinds of ways. My kids could testify to you today that all it takes for me is the noise level in the house. I want the noise level to be here, and they want the noise level to be, I can't reach that high, way up here. 
And I'm just like, you know, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you say to each other. Just be quiet. (laughs) And I can't handle it. Now, God has given me children, and I am called to serve them. And I'm also called to direct them, but I'm also called to be patient with them. And to instruct them with gentleness. I don't like that part. I like the part of scolding looks and threatening words. That's the way I like to get things done in my house. But I have a hard time submitting to God's authority to do the things that are within my calling. The same thing with my wife. It tells me to live with my wife with understanding. I don't want understanding sometimes. I want to do it my way. I have understand my needs and understanding of the things that I want to do. It's hard for us to submit. And I'm sure that all of you all can think of ways where you're always questioning your particular place of what you're called to do and how you should fulfill the calling of your covenant responsibility. So this particular event isn't a a major event that's reaching back to the past and reaching to the future, to the very moments that I'm speaking of in our own life that we may giggle about, but ultimately is the remnant of sin in our life. Jesus overcomes those things with the word of God and through his sonship, He fulfills complete obedience. He is the one in his place of the Son of God, who in his submission as the Son of God, is establishing and securing the inheritance of what God the Father is going to give him, which is all things. Now, this is very important to us, because as he is our brother, that means that inheritance belongs to us. It is dependent upon it, namely our salvation and eternal life. That if Jesus did not maintain faithfulness as his calling as son, we're all in a lot of trouble because there is no hope. We have no hope of salvation. We have no hope of eternal life. The only thing that we have is the expectation of end, death and damnation. But the devil leaves him because he tells him to go away. He has not only defeated Satan, he has shown that, and it's a shadowing of what is to come with the cross, he has now shown that Satan has no power over him. He says, be gone. And what does the devil do? He be gones. He leaves him and leaves him alone. And then the angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus did not surrender the place of sonship for a temporary earthly authority that would have turned everything upside down and destroyed all of our hope. This victorious act that occurs through Jesus' sonship is what is our whole hope is based upon. When we read and hear the Isaiah passage and we hear it read throughout the Advent season, for unto us a son is born, for unto us a son is given, the calling of Jesus Christ as son, what we are celebrating when we say that Mary has a son, which is the son of God, is the centerpiece of our hope. His submission, even unto death, is our victorious hope. And 
It is our victorious calling. We, as Christians, have to follow Jesus through these temptations, not in a hope of ourselves. See, we don't have to do the 40 days fasting and try to defeat Satan. We can't do it. We've already shown that we can't do it. In fact, Luke, instead of coming directly from the baptism of Jesus, he goes through and do the, does the genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Adam. And the interesting thing is, right before it goes into Luke chapter 4, and it ends with Adam, it says, Adam of God, which is assumed just like all the other passages, as you're looking at the begat passages, Adam was the son of God. Not the, the son of God, but he was at that time the son of God, but he failed. He could not maintain the place of his sonship because of his disobedience and his lack of submission to the word of God when he took on the fruit that he was called not to have. And so Luke is pointing out mankind failed. Now Jesus is here, the true son of God, And that is what Satan is going to attack. Because if Satan can attack his sonship, then he can attack anything that will cause him to be in eternal submission and damnation himself. It's a vain attack. Jesus conquers over death. This is one of the greatest foreshadowings of what is going to occur by the fullness of the cross. And it is defined by the words, the Son of God. So when we go back to Acts, and when we look at that, that Paul preaches first thing, that Jesus is the Son of God, it is the biggest fighting words that he could have come out with to establish the furthering of the mission of the church. So my question for you, is that your primary hope? It has all of these interwoven things going on. It's a very complex Phraseology. Jesus is the Son. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Anointed. He is the Messiah. All of these things were preached by Paul, first thing, as he is debating with them at that very moment. He says that, he, the, Luke says that Paul proved that Jesus is the Christ before them by going back through the scriptures. Just like Jesus, going back to the scriptures, he not only proves his position, he accomplishes his position by full obedience. So as you go out these doors today and you begin your new year next year, do you want to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Peter said, when answering Jesus' question, who do you say I am? He says, You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus responded to that saying, one, you didn't even come up with that yourself. That was given to you by God. And secondly, that is what I'm going to build my church on. Interestingly enough, in the second and third and fourth centuries of the church, have any of you ever heard of the ichthus? You may know what I'm talking about when I say the ichthus. Probably saying kind of like, ooh, he's saying the words like homoousius again. The ichthus you've seen, I'm sure you've all seen him. It's the little fish on the back of a car, and you'll see in Greek words inside of that. And those Greek words, unless you've got someone who's an atheist that puts Darwin inside of it, but in many cases, if you see Greek letters in it, those Greek letters spell ichthus. And it was an acrostic of Jesus Christ, 
God's Son, Messiah. The, the, word in Greek, the, the word for fish in Greek is ichthus. In the second and third, fourth centuries, that was something that they identified themselves with is for a lot of reasons, because of Jesus feeding the four and five thousand, and that it said the very proclamation of what the church is. And so you would see symbols of the ichthus throughout that time. It was also legendary understood to be a way to communicate to other people. And you weren't sure if you were going to be persecuted by them or hated by them. You would do an arch, an arc, and then they would do an arc on the ground as you met them. You would, and then you'd meet somebody, you would somehow or another, they would do an arc on the ground, and then they would come and they would do an arc, and it would form a fish. And it would be indicating that they too proclaim that Jesus Christ is God's Son, the Messiah, the Savior of all things. It was that important to the church because they were being killed for that. It was also the symbol that you would find early in the church to point to the Eucharist, the communion of God's people. And still even to this day, some churches will use the fish symbol as an indication of the Lord's Supper when they have it on their on their dishes and things like that, because it is a proclamation and foundation of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So when we take this, and when we take his name, we must also go back to the wilderness with Jesus and look at what he proclaimed and how he assured his sonship, and we must think, do we reflect that? You know, a lot of people question whether or not it's wise to have the ichthus on the back of your car as you're running people off the road and maybe flipping them off. Because <laughs> it's not very parallel to what maybe a Christian should be doing. A lot of people question whether it's a good thing to have the ichthus on your business card because sometimes there's people that are shady in their businesses and they want to just lean on the goodness of God's name to get their business, but they don't want to lean on the very things that Jesus won for us when he beat out Satan. Do we long to be truly covered in that in our life? Do we truly want to proclaim, as you come to this table, we are called to come with repentance and hope. That means we must understand our incompleteness by not being faithful to the law of God. That should also mean that we would despise being disobedient, that we would be despising our appetites ruling over our worship and submission to God, that we would give that up. Paul, when he admonishes the church about communion, in the very beginning with Corinthians, he's saying, you are given to your appetites when you come to this. You act hungry and you get drunk and you become gluttons. You are not considering the frame of the church. You're not considering other people. You are focused on yourself. You do not find it to be good to be a servant to mankind. The very things that Satan and his minions despise. When you come to this table, you are proclaiming your hope. But you can't come if you don't have hope. If you're not hoping in a Savior. If you're not hoping to have that transformed. If you're not hoping to be filled as Paul was strengthened by food. By the provision of God, the question for you is, as we take this table, are you hungry for the Son of God? Are you hungry 
for his salvation, do you hold to him in denying any goodness to come from your appetite, any goodness to come from your rebellion, any goodness to come from your own self-worship, that you're surrendering all of that unto the Son of God, the King of all things. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you.